It is Monday, September 14th. Here are the main ideas for today. Is a mask really necessary when just talking? Can a virus, in particular coronavirus, be transmitted through normal speech? A new study using lasers looks at how respiratory droplets are emitted during normal speech. And scientists revisit the famous psychology experiment, the marshmallow test, revealing new insights into self-control behavior and how it may have something to do with managing our reputation and its relevance for the future. All new ideas and discoveries on this episode of Tiger Minds. New discoveries and innovations in science, politics, finance, and culture that direct the course of our future are reported daily in academic journals but rarely make it to the mainstream news. These research journals contain transformative ideas and discoveries from the sharpest minds around the world. In this podcast, we study the research papers and bring you the main ideas so you stay sharp and prepared to make timely and intelligent decisions. I'm your host, Daniel Fengon. Welcome to Tiger Minds. To wear or not to wear? That is the question concerning masks that is gripping the world right now, especially here in the United States. In New York City, as of today, a $50 fine will be imposed on anyone commuting in the trains or subways without a mask. But as we know, some states around this country, as well as places around the world, have taken a less, far less aggressive approach to face coverings where it isn't mandatory. So, the question that everybody has been talking about is, is there a real value in face masks? What is it really preventing by wearing these face masks, especially if you're just talking to people? Now, a new study published in the journal Lancet Infectious Diseases and PNAS, scientists use lasers to visualize how respiratory droplets are emitted from the mouth during normal speech. During a pandemic, as we are experiencing right now, one of the active areas of research has been to identify the modes of transmission of this novel coronavirus. Because only if we identify how the virus spreads, how it transmits, can there be any real efforts towards coming up with effective and practical mitigation strategies. Now, it doesn't come as a surprise that coughing and sneezing contains droplets and it is already known that respiratory viruses can in fact be transmitted via the droplets that are generated by coughing and sneezing. This is not news. However, prior to the COVID pandemic, there hasn't been much research on normal speaking or the dynamics of droplet emission during normal speaking. What has been known so far is that in fact, droplets are emitted, are generated during normal speech and they range across sizes from 1 to 500 micrometers, and that these droplets can contain a variety of respiratory pathogens, including measles, influenza virus, as well as tuberculosis. But what about normal speaking? Can viruses be transmitted through normal speech? Can droplets be emitted during normal speech? And if so, how far? But before we talk about COVID and coronavirus in particular, Let's talk about how and why such droplets can emerge from normal speaking. Now, when we speak, speech-generated acoustic waves involve air that is passed at extremely high speed, 
Now, while we generate any type of sound, in particular speech-related sounds, this air then travels through the narrow passages between the tongue, the lips, teeth, and thus as a result, causes emission of oral fluids that are present at all of these different locations. Therefore, emission of droplets is without a doubt linked to the physics of speech generation. So how is this relevant to COVID-related transmission or mitigation strategies? Research published in a few journals, including the Journal of Clinical Microbiology and Nature, among others, it is now pretty clear from testing the fluids of COVID-positive patients that these fluids contain high viral loads, including asymptomatic patients who contain high loads of the COVID-19 virus. There was a new study in which, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in which scientists used an intense sheet of laser light, and this was used to visualize the burst of speech droplets that were emitted during spoken phrases. And this method showed that the average droplet emission rate is about 1,000 droplets per second, or at peak emission rates, it could be as high as 10,000 droplets per second. These droplets, of course, once emitted from our mouth while speaking naturally, evaporates or can fall to the ground if it's a heavier droplet. So if we know the rate of droplet emission, which we do, and the size of these droplets, which we do, then we can estimate how long do these droplets take to drop to the ground. Now, this is exactly what the scientists of this paper ventured out to do using their laser method. In other words, they wanted to answer the question, how long do these droplet emissions stay in the air to be transmissible to our neighbors? Now, a physicist in the 1800s by the name of Sir George Gabriel Stokes had come up with an equation for fluid mechanics known as Stokes' Law. According to Stokes' Law, the terminal velocity of a falling droplet scales as a square of its diameter. Simply put, the bigger the droplet, the faster it falls. Seems pretty straightforward. So given the terminal velocity of these droplets that are emitted, and if we know its size, then we can kind of estimate where exactly it's going to fall because it scales directly. However, it turns out that the size of these droplets is not as straightforward as earlier thought. Now, a study published in the American Journal of Epidemiology in 1934 showed that speech-generated droplets, once they are in the air, they rapidly start to dehydrate due to evaporation, which means its size is reduced significantly. The scientists of this study went back to Stokes' Law, which says that now that the size of the droplets have shrunk or decreased in size, that will slow their fall, extending their time in air. So the probability that speech droplets pass on an infection when emitted by a virus carrier is directly linked to how long the droplets remain airborne. So in this new study, the scientists used a new laser light scattering method. This method not only provides real-time visual evidence for speech droplet emission, but it also allows a way to assess their airborne lifetime, or how long do these droplets stay in the air. Check out the video on our Instagram page at Tiger Minds Podcast. So what did they find? So what did their new laser method show them? 
The results showed that in a closed, stagnant air environment, normal speech generates airborne droplets that can remain suspended for almost up to 15 minutes, which corresponds to droplet nuclei which were about 12 to 21 micrometer in diameter before dehydration. Now, this provides very clear evidence and confirms that there is a substantial probability that normal speaking causes airborne virus transmission, especially in confined environments. So, to wear or not to wear is not even a question. Mask up everyone, especially in closed confined spaces where you might just be talking to friends. If I ask everyone here to name me a psychology experiment and I took a poll of all the answers, one of the top five on that list will be the marshmallow test. This famous test was conducted at Stanford University to study delayed gratification in children. Delayed gratification is the ability to wait to get something at a later point with the hopes that there is a better reward at the end of it. So in the marshmallow test, young children are given one marshmallow and then they're told that they can eat it right away or if they wait a little longer while nobody else is watching, they can have two marshmallows at the end instead. To put it more formally, in this test, the child is given a choice between one small immediate reward or two small rewards at the end of a period of time or a waiting period. And typically, the test is used to see which one of the kids will pick the immediate gratification versus the delayed gratification. The real reason this test is famous, or infamous for that matter, is because researchers, when they tracked these same children that were used in that initial marshmallow study, later down the line, almost a decade later, they found that those children who were able to delay their gratification in the marshmallow test were associated with a range of positive life outcomes, including better stress tolerance, improved body mass index, uh, and even higher SAT scores. But a new study published in the journal Psychological Science has cast a few doubts to this original experiment and says that there's more to that story than was pointed out. The question is, when kids pass the marshmallow test, are they simply better at self-control or is something else going on? A new study from UC San Diego revisited the classic psychology experiment and they reported that part of what may be at work is that children care more deeply about what authority figures think of them. This new study shows that young children will wait nearly twice as long for the reward if they are told their teacher will find out how long they waited. This becomes the first demonstration that uh, researchers are calling reputation management, that reputation management might be a very important factor in these tasks. Now, the scientists of this study claim that this new research suggests that in addition to measuring self-control, the marshmallow test may also be measuring another important skill, awareness of what other people value.
the way in which this particular study was done had some very clear differences between the original marshmallow study and this one. In particular, the original study had about 90 children that were tested. In this study, there was a total of 273 preschool children ages 3 to 4 years old. But importantly, all of these experiments were done in China. Now, as I said, there were a couple of few critical differences in the way this marshmallow test 2.0, as I'm calling it, was conducted. The researchers told the children that they could earn a small reward immediately or wait for a bigger one. In this case, they didn't use a marshmallow. They used stickers and cookies. Children were randomly assigned to any of three conditions. Some were assigned to the teacher condition in which they were told that their teacher would find out how long they waited. Some of them, a second group, was assigned to the peer or classmate condition in which they were told that a fellow classmate would find out how long they waited. And finally, the third group was the standard condition. They had no special instructions, so this would be the original condition from the original marshmallow test from the 1970s at Stanford, where no special instructions were given. It is important to note that even in the original marshmallow test, as well as in this version of the task, the children were not told anything about which would be a good thing to do. There were no moral values assigned to waiting or not waiting. That was completely up to the children. The results were quite interesting. It showed that children waited longer in both the teacher and the peer condition than in the standard condition. In other words, in both the conditions in which they, the children were told that somebody would find out how long they would wait, those children waited longer than in the standard condition where no special instructions were given. But they also found that the children who were told that their teacher would find out were twice as likely to wait longer compared to the children who were told that their friends would find out. The researchers interpret these results to mean that when children decide how long to wait, they make a cost-benefit analysis. And that takes into account the possibility of getting what they call a social reward in the form of a boost in their reputation. These findings suggest that the desire to impress others is strong and can motivate human behavior starting at a very young age. Now, for this particular marshmallow test, which looks at delayed gratification, this finding is very surprising even to the researchers. Because the traditional thought is that a 3-year-old or a 4-year-old is too young to care about what people think about them. But this finding suggests otherwise. In fact, the children waited longer in the teacher and the peer conditions, even when no one told them that it's a good thing to wait longer. That was an inference that the children made on their own. Now, the authors of this paper go on to claim that they believe that children are good at making these kinds of inferences because they're constantly on the lookout for cues about what people around them value. This may take the form of carefully listening to the evaluative comments that parents and teachers give or noticing what kind of people and topics that are getting attention in the media. This is a very interesting study and it really questions the original marshmallow test. But this is certainly not conclusive for all three to four year olds 
because there is a strong factor of socioeconomics and culture that needs to be taken into account when we interpret this finding, given that this particular population of children that were tested all had somewhat of a similar cultural background, but it still needs to be taken into account when we are finding conclusions about the study. Regardless, it certainly points to the fact that social reputation and management of that reputation really starts at a very young age. It can be heavily influenced by what their authority figures, like parents and teachers, value and what they view in their environment. You know, in the original study in the 70s, when the scientists at Stanford tracked the same children who participated in the marshmallow test almost a decade later, the ones who had waited longer or delayed their reward were the ones who were associated with a range of positive life outcomes, including better stress tolerance, body mass index, as well as higher performance on standardized tests like the SAT. This is particularly critical. I think this is very relevant for our future since the world is heading towards a more interconnected world through social media and smart devices that children are not merely observing the values of their parents and their teachers anymore. But they are also influenced by values propagated by media and social media influencers for that matter. And so, more steps might have to be taken to account to ensure exposure to the right values of delayed gratification in children, especially during their formative years. And that's it for today's episode, folks. Thank you for listening to the Tiger Minds podcast, where we bring you new ideas and discoveries on Mondays and Fridays. Please check the show notes for the research publications relevant to the topics we discussed today. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Tiger Minds Podcast for episode previews. I'm Daniel Thengone. See you next time.